Hello, welcome to Disruptive, the podcast from Harvard's Wies Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering. I'm your host, Terrence McNally. The mission of the Wies Institute is to transform healthcare, industry, and the environment by emulating the way nature builds. Our bodies and all living systems accomplish tasks far more sophisticated and dynamic than anything yet designed by humans. By emulating nature's principles for self-organizing and self-regulating, Wies researchers develop innovative engineering solutions for healthcare, energy, architecture, robotics, and manufacturing. They focus on technology development and its translation into products and therapies that will have an impact on the world in which we live. At the Wies, folks are not interested in making incremental improvements to existing materials and devices, but in shifting paradigms. In this episode of Disruptive, we will explore bio-inspired robotics. Many of the most advanced robots in use today are still far less sophisticated than ants that self-organize to build an anthill, or termites that work together to build impressive, massive mounds in Africa. From insects in your backyard, to creatures in the sea, to what you see when you look in the mirror, engineers and scientists at Wies are drawing inspiration to design a whole new class of smart robotic devices. We're going to explore this exciting territory in a three-part episode of Disruptive, featuring three members of the Wies faculty, Connor Walsh, Robert Wood, and Radhika Nagpal. Today's guest, Robert Wood, is the Charles River Professor of Engineering and Applied Sciences in the John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, founder of the Harvard Microrobotics Lab, a founding core faculty member of the Wies Institute, and co-leader of its bio-inspired robotics platform. Wood completed his MS and PhD degrees in electrical engineering and computer sciences at UC Berkeley. In 2010, Wood received the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers from President Obama for his work in microbiotics, and in 2012 was selected for the Alan T. Waterman Award, the National Science Foundation's most prestigious early career award. Welcome, Robert Wood, to Disruptive. Thank you. I mentioned a few biographical highlights, but before we jump into your work, in your own words, can you tell us a bit about your path? Sure, I'd be happy to discuss. So I guess my interest in robotics uh, started as a graduate student, so I was trained uh, in the sort of classically in electrical engineering, uh, but my my interests sort of branched out beyond uh, a sort of single disciplinary track, and so robotics was a natural fit. Uh, I'm also a tinkerer. I've been you know building ever since you know Legos and you know model airplanes and all of that. All of my model airplanes, ironically, have ended up in the top of a tree, but. Uh, so with that in mind and, uh, just serendipitously when I was at, uh, Berkeley, uh, looking for, uh, projects that caught my eye, one was in its infancy, which was this, uh, project called the Micromechanical Flying Insect Project that my would-be future, uh, mentor Ron Fearing, uh, was, was just starting at the time. It turns out to be the, the predecessor of a lot of the things we do in particular in the RoboBees project. Uh, and so that was just, uh, just starting and, uh, it caught my eye as, you know, really opening up a huge number of challenges that uh, sort of taken for granted for other types of engineering and robotics projects. Like, for example, if you're going to make a little flying robot, then there's nothing off the shelf, which is going to give you the the types of things that you need, uh, the types of components that you need for these devices. How do you make them? How do you power them? How do you control them? What sensors? What kind? You know, what computation and what power? All, all of these were open questions that had no solutions. And so that struck me as, as a very rich bath of, you know, problems that we could sort of dive into. And to get a little bit more specific, one of the things that I wanted to do is figure out how to control their flight. 
And my advisor, Ron, uh, more or less said, they don't exist yet, so you got to go build them first. And so that sort of had this natural path to it that led to uh, a lot of our work in how do you build complex devices at these small scales. Mm. So one thing I hear is uh, you're a child with your dad, remote control airplanes, and now here you are in your career, smaller, tiny, and so on, but still things that fly. Right. Actually, I recall wanting to be an aerospace engineer, but my dad thought that that was not lucrative enough. So, uh, so I had the choice of electrical and mechanical. But yeah, it all it came sort of came around. I mean, and it's not necessarily flight per se. It's just again, it's just these complex systems. You know, mul- you know, multidisciplinary systems that you have to develop solutions that that span some of these disciplines. Now, one of the things that I keep finding when I'm talking with folks at Vs is, of course, the biological inspiration. You know, the, the whole platform that you're in and so on. So here's a simple but big question. Why do you study bees? So bees specifically are just a metaphor. I mean, the the devices that we make are more fly-like than bee-like, um, but the, the bees are supposed to be sort of a metaphor for uh, the collective behavior of, of these insects. So one of the big aspects of this project that we were collaborating with uh, with Radhika Nagpal, that she was leading this question of how these things would work together such that the whole are greater than the sum of the parts, just like a, you know, a bee colony, for example. But in reality, what we make are more like flies. Okay, but that aside, you know, why would we look to nature for inspiration? Well, I mean, it's for these types of systems where there's so many unknowns. Like, you know, if you just say, build me something that's a tenth of a gram uh, that can fly around the room and do something interesting, where do I start? Well, I could start for something that's a tenth of a gram that can fly around the room. And so that was one sort of anecdotal aspect. The other one was at the inception of the Micromechanical Flying Insect Project. Uh, my advisor was working very closely with a, a group of biologists who were just on the cusp of understanding how insects fly, which sounds a little odd that it would have you know been in the late 90s. We haven't figured this out yet, but they did this remarkable work in, you know, in really understanding the, the aerodynamical basis for how flies and other insects achieve the agility that they have. You know, that was, my, I guess, maybe the first and and uh, and one of the most uh, sort of memorable examples that I have of biologists, engineers working together to mutual benefit, and that sort of stuck with me all along. So you've been working on flying insect robots for nearly fifteen years, right? And RoboBee is the first insect-sized winged robot to demonstrate controlled flight. Can you tell? that story. And by that, I mean, like, what was the problem? What was the inspiration? What were the big challenges? What were the breakthroughs? Kind of the narrative of how you got to uh, that flight. So with RoboBees, I guess it, it started uh, in, in my lab, at least uh, shortly after I arrived at Harvard. Well, a lot of the work that I was doing as a graduate student was figuring out some of the core, like, well, how do we develop motors, if you will, the little actuators for these things, given that, again, nothing is off the shelf. How do we think about how do we build devices at this scale that can, for example, flap wings around? So we had a little bit of that in place, and we, you know, I just tried a few sort of crazy ideas and demonstrated that, indeed, it was very feasible uh, to start to make things which could actually get off the ground, uh, extremely uncontrolled and unpowered and tethered and all of this. But that just gave us enough ammunition to put together this larger project, this RoboBees project, and start to attack these problems sort of one by one. And so some of the problems that we had at first started from still, how do you build? You know, everything that we were doing before that was 
it might have produced working prototypes, but at great expense and time and, uh, you know, it was very tedious and required a great amount of skill. It was very hand sort of assembled stuff. And so how do we overcome all of these challenges to make many uh, repeatable uh, high performance prototypes with feature sizes ranging from roughly about the size of your hair, right? The diameter of your hair. So how, you know, how can we do that? Um, that was one. Okay. So we spent a lot of time figuring that out. Next moved on to, well, if we can do these, the, the design space for these types of things is enormous. Even if you go by what we think the insect is doing, there's still so many variables there that, you know, we don't know what is functional versus what is phylogenetic or just what are what are the constraints that are that the insect is being posed so we used our processes to try to work through dozens of generations of designs till we got something that could fly could produce the sort of forces and torques it needs to control its flight then the next challenge was control how do we think about wrapping a controller around this system next challenge after that was sensors everything that we were doing previously with control was with offboard sensing so now how do we migrate that onboard and so the list goes on. What we're currently working on is what we've learned from control and now migrating that on board with uh, some of our collaborators who are making custom integrated circuits to do some of this. And then also power, uh, also with some collaborators both within and outside of the Beast Institute. So it's just a series of challenges that we try to sort of knock out one by one. And, you know, if you ask us, for example, well, what's the most challenging thing? Well, it's currently what we're working on. Oh, uh, sure we, it is. Yeah. We, you know, we, we, we have solutions for the other stuff. So you're doing what 15 years ago was a dream, right? What's next? So the next for us in the RoboBees project yeah. is to, uh, to continue adding in onboard sensing, to continue adding in onboard control, meaning custom integrated circuits that will do everything that we've been learning using big offboard computers. That also sort of dictates that we need to change around the design. It needs more payload. So it's a sort of circular thing. You know, what we want to do is just cut the tether uh, and have everything be fully autonomous. And so it sounds easy, but again, it, it comes back to these challenges with even seemingly simple things. Well, can't you just put a battery on it? Well, yes, if the batteries existed at that scale. Well, do you have to redesign batteries? Well, yes, uh, the chemistry works out fine. It's just a matter of packaging. Some of them, like battery packaging, for example, might seem pretty non-academic and at times pretty frustrating. But these are, yeah, these are things that we must overcome to achieve that. And I, I want to talk about potential applications in a second. But one of, if I'm not mistaken, one of the big things was this pop-up assembly. One of the things that you came up with to solve one of these problems along the way may have a lot of, uh, of other uses and may open some doors. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so we think that's true. So as we were really sort of focusing on how do we build the things, we, you know, it's, it's not only biology that we look to for inspiration. You know, we look anywhere we can get it, right? So the solution that we came up with for how to build things on small scales took inspiration from uh, folding, so assembly by folding. So imagine, you know, folding a, a paper airplane. Now imagine folding a paper airplane that has, you know, several hundred or even a thousand little features in it. Uh, quickly that's going to become intractable. So um, another piece of inspiration that we had is from children's pop-up books. So, you know, almost like ship in a bottle cut type things where pull a little string or you push on something or whatever and out pops this sort of miraculously complex device. And so uh, that sort of paradigm really opened up the possibility of making these things more repeatable from one device to the next parallelize them. So, you know, making 10 or hundred or whatever at once that in and of itself was enabling for our research, but we also have several other sort of research lines that have come out of that. So 
One is we just recently got a, a new uh, DARPA-sponsored program to expand some of these capabilities into microsurgical devices, which, at least on the surface, to us, naively, that seems to make a lot of sense. If you want small-scale, you, know, you can make small-scale, articulated, actuated, sensor-embedded structures, then things like minimally invasive surgery probably make some sense to try to explore. So is this, in that regard, is that pop-up first, or are you actually talking about things that you insert them and then they pop up? So it could be either. If you think of pop-up more generically as just deploying stuff, whether it's deploying a final structure that's then frozen into place and then used for something, or the deployability is a feature that you want for entering through small lumens, orifices, whatever, and then expanding into do and doing some function Either way, it's all based upon the same sort of principles of these sort of folding-based structures. And as you say, you, were, you look to biology, you look to pop-up books, origami, all sorts of things. How does that happen? How does that kind of looking at all these different possible sources of inspiration, how does that happen? How does that take place? In reality, this is the strength of the Wies Institute is that, well, what, how, how do you solve complex open-ended problems like this? Well, you get good people. That's obvious. You get creative people. You get multidisciplinary influences all around you such that maybe a solution from another discipline sort of lends itself to what you're working on and really give them the, both the creative freedom and the sort of the infrastructure, the infrastructural resources. You know, we have the ability in lab to create almost literally anything ranging from, you know, over nine orders of magnitude and physical scale, right? So giving them tools to do these types of things and create and just create, repeat. The sort of the mantra in the lab is build and test and build and test. And you expect most of the things that you're gonna build will not work but you learn from them. And so just with this sort of mentality, the infrastructure, the, the sort of personnel that we have in the Institute, that's what enables this, I believe. And one of the things which I know got uh, a fair amount of attention in August of 2014, your research group announced the world's first robot that builds itself and performs a function without human intervention, forms itself from a flat sheet into a four-legged creature that crawls, self-assembly, locomotion. What's the story behind that one? So that was, this is a really, it's actually an ongoing project. So this is a really fun uh, collaboration with some of our long-term collaborators at MIT who work more on the sort of origami side and in the, the algorithm side to say, study things like what can you make just by using folding? And if you prove that you can make something, then how do you prescribe the sort of fold sequence to achieve that? And these sorts of really interesting questions. And then with us, uh, you know, thinking about more on uh, from the manufacturing side, you know, how can we actually build these devices that would then implement these algorithms? And so the robot in this case is not particularly impressive at all. I mean, it's the, the point is not to build some really cool robot. The, the point is to embed all of this theory that they've developed for, for lack of a better word, universality. Like, what can you build? How can I build something and then claim the techniques that I've been using in this particular demonstration can be applied to generically across you know, any sort of robot or structure or mechanism. And so what's really interesting about the robot is that it embeds the core elements that our collaborators said are necessary to show this sort of universality. And then it also embeds a method to self-assemble. So those two things uh, are, are what really got us excited about that. I remember when I first heard that story, one of the things that struck me was the wonderful combination of old and new origami, the shrinky-dink. It seems like you were taking advantage of all sorts of existing technologies and approaches, and yet at the same time, it's cutting edge. Talk to us a little about that mix. Yeah, so it's, again, I think part of this theme of we use whatever tools we can. 
it doesn't have to be something horribly fancy. Like for example, you know, we were thinking about how we could make devices that would fold themselves. What is the sort of the basis for this folding? What's going to actuate that fold? And there's a lot of options. I mean, there's a lot of materials which change their properties if you heat them or shine light on them or whatever you do to them. What fell out of as, as the best solution as a kid's toy is these shrinky dinks, right? So it's just so happens that these materials, the nice thing about these materials and not just these, but a lot of the other materials we made, they've been already engineered for some other application. So they've already been, you know, thought out how they should be processed, you know, how they should be cut and machine, whatever is necessary to use them. All that's been thought out for us for these things. We don't have to reinvent that. So that's really appealing and plus they're cheap and, you know, pretty accessible and all of that. You've touched on it a couple of times about the VIS environment and the collaboration and the you know various stimulation and so on. But can you sort of talk about what effect this has on the way you think and approach your work versus perhaps a, a more academic arena or something like that? Yeah. So becoming part of the institute, I guess now in in retrospect, it was a sea change for me because as I started off at Harvard, I never really thought about what's my IP portfolio look like. Right at the end of the day. In fact, I remember sitting in a meeting and Don Ingber happened to be there, and this was before the, the Institute started. And I said something like naively and stupidly as a fresh uh, junior faculty member, somehow it came up. I said, well, uh, nobody's ever going to care about what patents I have, uh, you know, meaning more like, you know, they're going to care about, you know, what nice papers I write, my citations, all this other stuff. And so he, of course, raised his hand and vehemently objected to this. And so, you know, fast forward several now, five, six years later, and uh, this is really, we really think about this. You know, the Institute has at first forced us, and now we're gung-ho about thinking about translational opportunities and not just sort of letting nice papers like, you know, we have this cool demo of this self-folding robot and we never read a nice paper, but that's great. But now thinking about what are the next two, three, four steps? What is the next, you know, who's going to take this and find the markets for where this would be applicable. Who's going to start the company? Who's going to go start to negotiate the license deals? Have we filed a patent on this yet? You know, all of these questions are instant now for us. And that's great learning experience for me. But I think it really, um, it gives back to our students as well at all levels, you know, undergrad through postdoc and, and higher. I mean, it's, it sort of gives them an edge, a mindset that you don't typically get in an academic institution. And that's likely to pay big dividends. Looking at it from the other perspective, what is it you gain that you wouldn't normally have in a commercial institution? The innovative aspect. The, you know, there's so many pressures, although I've never, I, I should give a disclaimer here. I've never really had a real job. So, <laughs> so this is, uh, this is really totally from, from, the, from, the out, from the outside looking in, but there's constraints which don't necessarily exist in an academic institution. Academic institutions are supposed to have intellectual freedom, right? You'd go and if something is, is of interest is deemed of academic value, then you can go explore that. Uh, and that's not necessarily the case in, a, in, in something that's more driven by marketability and profit and these sort of things, right? Of course. I mean, those are obvious statements. So somewhere in between, uh, which is where the Institute lives, is this sort of sweet spot where we still have academic freedom. I, you know, I can go out and explore topics that I think are relevant or interesting scientifically, but then there will be a, you know, a team of people behind me just sort of waiting for the technology fallout and, you know, asking, you know, poking me with questions like, so what's this good for? And, you know, how can I use this in, you know, in a biomedical application or, hey, this looks kind of like the, whatever, you know, so, so there's kind of the best of both worlds there. What questions right now are the itches you're just beginning to scratch? You know, what's on the horizon for you? So I, a lot of what we have had challenges historically with, and, and this is true across, I think, everything that we do is actuation and power. So 
for, for us as roboticists, if we can use, for example, an electromagnetic motor, just a DC motor or whatever, uh, you probably have no reason not to. But if you're in an instance uh, where you can't, whether it has to be something that's so small that motors don't exist, or if it's something that you know, has to be soft so you can't use metal components, or if it has to be something wearable, such as do bulk, whatever the application is, then you have very few choices, if any choices. So coming up with solutions there, um, I'll, draw, I'll just draw the analogy of uh, artificial muscle. Okay, so that's one of the two big challenges I see that whether we like it or not, we are struggling with. And similarly with power, batteries are okay, but they're still orders of magnitude away from hydrocarbons, these sorts of things, which we'd like to get away from. So can we come up with uh, you know something that sort of pushes that gap closer? And I'll just draw the analogy to fat. So if I had muscle and fat, if I had the engineering equivalent of muscle and fat, I think we could build a much broader spectrum of, of useful uh, robots than, than we can today. Muscle and fat. As you were speaking, I found myself thinking biology does everything you're striving to do. And that's exactly what you're saying, isn't it? The closer you can get to biology, the better. Finally, if you could stand in the future 20 to 25 years from now, what would you see? What roles are robots playing in our lives? Yeah, I mean, I think we get in trouble if we speculate too much because, you know, the if we're, we're actually starting to, just now, starting to undo all of the damage that sci-fi movies have, right? So if there's, a, if there's a robot in a movie, that's not going to end well for the humans. And there's also undue expectations that come along with that. And that's all. That's fine. That's fun. But, uh, you know, so it's hard. I want to be a little bit careful with speculating. But, I mean, certainly there's going to be more, not just sort of factory automation, but more household automation. There's going to be and medical automation. So having robots that assist either in the way that, for example, Connor Walsh is doing with things that you physically wear or things that you just find lying around your house, which assist in cooking dinner or walking around playing with your cat or whatever it might be, you're going to find a lot more examples of that. And I, I believe that that would be uh, driven a lot by some answers to these basic questions in actuation and power that would really uh, enable greater autonomy for these types of systems. You've been listening to Disruptive Bioinspired Robotics. I'm Terrence McNally. My guest today has been Robert Wood. We invite you to listen to the other two segments of this episode with Connor Walsh and Radhika Nagpal. We'll talk with Walsh about his work with soft and wearable robots that have practical applications from healthcare to the military. Nagpal's team built a swarm of a thousand robots who can, without direction, organize themselves into the shape of a starfish. And Radhika is as passionate about living a whole life as she is about breakthrough science. You can find both those podcasts at iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find them at the VS site. VS is spelled W-Y-S-S. And the site is wyss.harvard.edu. You can also learn more there about the innovative work of the Institute. There's an extensive library of articles and videos. You can also sign up at VS, iTunes, or SoundCloud to have disruptive podcasts delivered to you monthly. My thanks to Seth Kroll and Mary Tolikas of the VS Institute and to J.C. Swadek in production, and of course to you, our listeners. This is our second episode of Disruptive, and if you like what you hear, let us know, and feel free to share far and wide. I look forward to being with you again soon.